Hi, welcome to Paperback Readers. I'm Joe, that's Julie. Hope everybody's doing well, and uh, welcome back for another two-week interval in our so-called reading life. For our 20th episode. Didn't realize that. It is. Number 20 for us. I wish that I'd read more books. (laughs) (laughs) We've read a lot. Although this week was a little slow, these two weeks were. Yeah, ditto. Well, um, the first thing that I read was Early Morning Riser by Catherine Henney. Um, This book started out really slow. I bought it partly because the cover is really gorgeous, and I really like that title. (laughs) And also because I heard it come highly recommended. But it it started out really slow, and I wasn't sure I was going to like it. But I ended up just falling in love with it. It might be a top book of the year for me. It's pretty amazing. I read you pieces of it. Well, um, I mean, that's an interesting intro there. I mean, I'm always the guy who's like, oh, titles don't matter, covers don't matter, throw something on there. But, okay, you know, tell people a little bit more about what really reeled you in. Well, I bought this one because the main character, Jane, um, she moves to this small town and she starts dating Duncan immediately. Um, who has uh, slept with half the town. Oh, you're remembering this book now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's the claustrophobia of small town, of not being able to go anywhere where she doesn't run into one of his former girlfriends. Um, uh, and added to the fact that he is um, really just noncommittal. He has no desire to be married. He has no desire to be in a truly serious relationship. Um, Jane doesn't think she can handle any of this. But then there's an accident and it throws her and Duncan back together in a way that just changes both of the rest of their lives. And it was really, it was a, a really gorgeous um, tribute to small town life, to what marriage really is, um, and to the idea of loving the people that you're with, even when they make you crazy. Well, community, I think, was one of the things that, that when we talked about this, kept coming up. And I think that's a really resonant thing now. Everybody's looking for a community, whether it's you know people who've been closeted in because of COVID or you know people who are going through changes in their lives. But and, when people think about community, they think about almost like a utopia. There will be this perfect little spot where I will fit... And everything will just click together. But, you know, community is really round peg square hole Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And you're just figuring out a way to extend grace to other people, to love them, and to all get along together, even when you don't really fully like each other. To learn to love each other anyway. That's when community is really, really cool. And I say that even though I don't like that any more than anybody (laughs) else does. But it, it was such a good book because of those things. Awesome. All right, then I read Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller. This is a book about how to build your business and how to market it. I don't have a business. I don't really have anything to do with (laughs) marketing, but I've really loved Donald Miller's writing. I think this was the only one of his books that I had not read. I think we have every other one except this one. It's hard to tell because he is one of those authors who has the unfortunate habit of re-releasing books under slightly different titles. I really and you go, hate that. Oh, it's a new book, and it's not a new book. It's I really, the book you already read. Really hate that. Yeah, but I don't know if that's him or the publisher or both, but somebody's making a dollar on it, and it is a skeezy way to be. But. It is, but his his books themselves, in under <laughs> yeah. whatever title or whatever version you read. They're really good, usually. They're thought-provoking. Um, they're oh. interesting. This was a total departure from the other things because, again, it's about business. His other books have been at least loosely about faith, 
about family, about finding yeah. who you are, about centering yourself in Christian life. And this one was like, hey, here's a business. Here's how you make people want it. No, oh, because that's what he's been doing yeah. uh, in, in his own life. Basically. And he's excellent at it. And this book, you know, even for somebody who's not, I don't have a business, but it was really interesting just to kind of see how those things work, how yeah. the marketing is all put together. So I'm going to go the the back pages here. If you want to check out some of the early Donald Miller stuff, Blue Like Jazz, which feels like it was like 100 million years ago now, but at the mm. time was this very kind of edgy, ooh, is this too dangerous for Christianity kind of thing. <laughs> uh, I don't think it probably reads that way now, but I need to, to pull it off again It's and one see. of those books that I haven't read in so long that I think I would understand it a different way if I yeah. read it again. But I did like his whole catalog. That was his first one. It was uh -huh. a favorite. There was another one that followed it that I can't remember the name of that I liked even more. I love To Own a Dragon, which is his book about uh, the failure of, of, of fatherhood, the way that there are all these boys in the world. And he was one of them who, you know, for whatever reason, the father's not really present. And the way that, you know, the, the metaphor there was we're, we're taught to think of God the Father, but if you don't know your father, you might as well try to conceive of owning a dragon. That was a really good book. And also, I think the book was called Scary Close of his. That was about marriage. Right. Because his books, while they deal with faith, they also, ironically, deal with community. Sure. And about how to exist and how important it is to exist in community. But then he wrote Scary Close, I guess, maybe even after he was engaged or after he was married. At least engaged, yeah. We got to reread. But yeah. yeah, they're they're just, um, they're really interesting. And even if you don't agree with him on everything, they're generally written with enough grace that you find somebody to talk to about it. And it's not like anything that you might not agree with is not going to slap you in the face. He's so. one of those writers who I always felt like has great stuff and then kind of has no idea how to end it. Did he know how to end this book? Was this a, just, an improvement? It's, well, it's, it's a marketing book. It's more so, A to B to C to yeah, D, so exactly. not as big of an issue. It was more more structured clearly along, here's what we do. Do you remember the time we went to meet Donald Miller and I couldn't talk to him? We did, we did, <laughs> yes. And, and you couldn't, We went to I a did. church. He was coming to a church and we were so excited. And so we went to this church. We heard his message. It was fantastic. Great speaker. And then we got him, we brought... It may have been the first time I'd met a writer that I really, really admired. And we had a book for him to sign. I think we bought his new book there maybe too. Mm -hmm. And um, I just shoved the book at him and you look at me for a second like, what is wrong with you? Why are you mute? And then you just talk to him for me. It, he's a nice guy. But my <laughs> abiding memory was at the church that we went to open the service that day with U2's Beautiful Day. That was their opening song. They did it pretty well. It was a pretty spot-on U2, and I was like, wow, this is different, impressive. But anyway. That tells you more about the kind of church we were going well, to at the time. Would, would you rather else. me remember the, the like I, rock and roll open, or would you rather me remember the fact that you were rendered you know, unable to speak in I've the presence of a I've already said that, hero? so I mean, anyway. <laughs> what have you been reading? Get back on track. Uh, anyway. I have read uh, a couple of things. Uh, American Hip Hop is my latest <laughs> young people book by a guy named Nathan Sachs. This is a really cool series, and actually Ryan and I are doing the R&B one next, which I think is called American R&B, but never fear. When we finish it, I'll include it. Uh, you know, he's very music obsessed. Cool thing they did here that I love, at the end of every chapter, there's a playlist. And so... Uh, we tried some of the, the hip-hop stuff, but largely they were songs with the E for explicit lyrics, so they're not in the playlist. But the uh, 
The R&B stuff, of course, has been much easier. So we got a massive Spotify playlist with all these great songs. We actually listen to it in the morning. So I keep trying to interest Ryan in something that I can read with him, too, because he and I used to read together all the time. But now you've hooked him in with all these music books. Well, I, I mean, with I can't find anything that he wants to read that you're not already reading with him. Right. Well, I mean, it's just there's so much stuff available, and again, that's and a, you guys uh, do it all electronically, and I don't read electronically, so yeah, yeah, it does help. Uh, but we kind of plowed through that, and then uh, a book I didn't even know about. I think I texted you the second I found out about it. And I found out about it electronically, and this is, again, probably a testimony to COVID, because otherwise I feel like I would have seen this 50,000 places, but Malcolm Gladwell has a new book out. Yeah, I don't know how we missed that. Well, yeah, it must have come along pretty quick. The Bomber Mafia is the title. It's shorter than most of his books, and I think I told you, I I was kind of curious as to the genesis of it, and late in the book he does indeed acknowledge that while most of his book ideas are books that then somebody makes into an audiobook. This started out as an audiobook. Hmm. And the publisher was like, you know, we could print this up. And and so they did, which does make the audiobook really good because mm-hmm. he's got all these like interview clips and things that you can hear, you know, people in their own literal words. Anyway, Bomber Mafia is a World War II story. It's about, as the title would suggest, bombing in World War II. And it's largely an ethical book. What what are the ethics of war? You know, should you ever bomb civilians? If by bombing civilians you shave a year off of war, are you doing a decent thing? It's still not at all humane, but, you know, is the stitch in time that saves nine a, a, a stitch to, to be pursued even at the cost of, of lives? This might be something we talk about more when I read it, too. Yeah, it, it, it largely... As a history, it's kind of sprawling because I felt like the first half of the book was just like, here's a crazy military guy, and he liked this. But then there was this other crazy military guy, and he liked this. And I'm like, where, where is this all going? But then it all comes together, ultimately, with the uh, the napalm bombing that they did. They talked about the development of napalm and, and how they were going to use it. I mean, again, it's, it's largely a book about ethics. So unlike any of his other stuff... Um, it's shorter than any of his others. It would be a terrible starting place for Gladwell, but if you're like me and you've done some of his other stuff and you're interested in him, uh, I think you'll you'll find it interesting. Uh, I, you really, we, we've got it on request. You should read it. And, uh, maybe I will we'll read dig it. into that a little deeper. I don't know. I don't know that there will be much left to say. It's a short book. You may have already said it all. I so. don't know. Then I read... And this was a little uh, research for me. The Last Coach, A Life of Paul Bear Bryant by Alan Barra. Uh, I am working on something involving Coach Bryant, so I had professional reasons to read it, not just personal ones. Uh, but a great biography, really does an incredibly thorough job. Obviously had left no stone unturned. In you know. But you're not done with this one yet? I, I'm right at the end of it. Okay. I wanted to go ahead and talk about it because... I am at like 95% finished with it. This is the one that you keep reading me pieces of, but you don't tell me what you're reading. And so you'll read me this whole big chunk and then look at me waiting for my reaction. And I'm like, what was that? I read you a bit today about how he ate terribly. I don't remember the exact language Barry used, but it was something along the lines of how people blamed whiskey or cigarettes for his early death. But 
most people were leaving out cream gravy as a possibility. And then they had a great quote from his grandson about how he loved to eat crystal hamburgers. You know, it's fascinating to have anybody really brought to life via biography. I mean, that's what you ultimately seek to do. And a guy like Brian, who, who's been alive not that awful long ago, but still, you know, houndstooth hat and the, the mythological. Again, the title is The Last Coach. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, that's an overstatement. There's plenty of great coaches. There may never be a coach like Brian, a, a my way or the highway, uh, you know, run Might people to death thing. and not let them drink water. Yeah, obviously, you'd like to think the world's evolved, but but he was a complicated man. Uh, the, the chapters dealing with integration are some of the most interesting. Uh, there are stories of how Bryant told people that had he stayed at Kentucky, where people don't realize he was the coach, he would have liked to have been the Branch Ricky of college football, uh, which is really intriguing. Instead at Alabama... Uh, he kind of fell behind the times, but uh, Barra does a good job of telling the inside story there, and a lot of it was him going toe-to-toe with George Wallace. Uh, a lesser coach probably wouldn't have integrated as well or as quickly as Bryant did. So uh, a lot to chew on here, a lot of really good information, and a, a guy who was respectful to his subject but not afraid to question him either. All right. So that's the list, and then there's the joint book. Yes, we mentioned this one last week. We'll try to start doing that every time we do a podcast, let you know what we're reading next so that you can read along or at least give us your opinion if you already have opinions about the book. But we told you that we would be reading A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Joe, you listened to it on audio, Mm -hmm. and I read your print copy. just finished it today, actually. Um, Dickens is one of our favorite writers. Great Expectations is a favorite for both of us. A Tale of Two Cities, though, is very, very different from Great Expectations, and um, we have some good things and some bad things to say about it. So let's start out with a summary. Well, it's hard to not engage in spoilers, but it is largely a novel about the French Revolution. Uh, It jumps around some in time. We have uh, some French people and some English people, and we kind of follow them. We know some about them before the Revolution through the revolution, and all of the chaos that comes through it. We're looking at the way that the French Revolution changed lives on both sides of the channel. Yeah. How it changed the course of history, but also changed all the individuals that it marched right over. Yeah, and, and in the way that any great historic novel has to do, I mean, we can we can touch on the generalities, but, but really it's fascinating in the specifics and the people who Dickens chooses to, to bring into his story uh, Lucy Manette and her father, Dr. Manette, and uh, I'm, I'm blanking on her husband's name. Uh, Charles Darnay. Charles Darnay, yes. Um, yeah, they're at the, key, at the center of it, but there are all these great peripheral characters. Which too. is one of Dickens' just, it's where he excels, is the peripheral characters. Yeah, because they're really not peripheral, you know? Early on in the story when I said to you, oh my gosh, this is Jerry Cruncher. Like, he's some kind of hick. He gets on my nerves. And you're like, oh, you will love Jerry Cruncher. And I'm like, just that name. It just sets your I was going to say, it. I love the name right here. I feel like like this is as close as Dickens ever got to my Eastern Kentucky roots. <laughs> I want to say I went to middle school with a guy we called Jerry Cruncher. And, and, you know, we didn't, but, uh, yeah, but we could You would say have. it either way. <laughs> Um, but his name, he names characters absolutely perfectly. 
for both who they're going to be and the roles that they're going to play in the story. Um, the Defarges, I mean, just everybody is named perfectly as always. Um, so yeah, he throws those kinds of things in it. Characterization is a huge strength for him. Yeah, one of the things that stands out for this novel, and I don't feel like he does this often in, in some of his others, is the way that it's kind of peeling an onion here. You get to a certain layer and you're like, okay, I've got this person. I figured them out. And then he peels a layer and you're like, ooh, no, I didn't. Just... I feel like that that's this novel, really. Yeah. Like other Dickens novels, you don't feel like that right, as much at right, all. Right, yeah. exactly. It's this one totally. Um, but he creates... So that's another strength with him, with the characterization. But also another strength is the worlds that he creates. Mm -hmm. We've talked about him before, I think, as we compared him to J.K. Rowling, or compared J.K. Rowling to him. Right. Um, but he, he creates a world so vivid that you can see it. One criticism that I've heard of Dickens is that he has too much description. But <laughs> the French Revolution came alive. Um, the guillotine pictured as a woman, um, something that is being fed bringing her wine, yeah. just, uh, it was absolutely stunning, horrifying, chilling, and if he could not create a world the way he did, then this would have, it would not have been the masterwork that it is. Yeah, and, and I think that's really one of the strengths of the novel. I feel like I learned more about the French Revolution in the pages of A Tale of Two Cities than I have anywhere else. But the thing is, I wasn't worrying about what I was learning with it because I don't even know if all the things he wrote about were true or false or whatever. It, it was just, it was contained in this world. Sure. And that was so interesting. Those are some of his strengths. I want to talk for a minute about weaknesses in this <laughs> novel because we, we both loved it. You loved it more than I did um, because I really got, I thought it had a really slow start. Like you were telling me, just hang on till you got to chapter three. Recalled to life. What else do I have to say? I'm hooked. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure I wanted to do this again. And I got to chapter three and recalled to life. And I'm like, I'm in. I'm in. Well, chapter three is where he started sounding like Dickens to me. There was a little bit of it in chapter two. Chapter one was, was very different from other Dickens that mm -hmm. I've read. It was hard to get into. Again, like I've said on previous podcasts, Reading literature like this is difficult for me sometimes because of the way that I have to read right now. Um, and it's very just pick up here and stop a few pages later. Early in this novel, I was sitting on the couch trying to read it and you kept talking to me and then a kid would talk to me and then the dryer would stop and I could not get past three pages. And so it's hard to read. That, that's probably part of where my criticisms come from. You listen to this in longer stretches. You are uninterrupted. And, and I knew it. I had you, read it yeah. before. So that makes it a little bit easier. And that's yeah. another thing I told you as I read this. I could see this being just a really gorgeous reread. But you got to get through it the first time to be able to reread it. You do. So I thought that it was a very slow start. It had it dragged in the middle a little bit for me. And as I moved on through the book, I could see why all the pieces in the middle were important. You did have to know them. They weren't, you know, excessive. They weren't just thrown in there because he liked to write. As Dickens sometimes does read that way, since so many of his novels were written serially for mm. magazines and so you're filling a word count and and so some of his novels do seem wordy i know why he put all those things in there but it still did drag for me some in the middle yeah. there was a point about uh, really on just over halfway where i opened it up i started reading the chapter and i said okay now we're getting to it 
Mm-hmm. Now I see. But it took me a long time to get there. And again, reading as I do right now, that was very hard to push through to get to that part. Yeah. Um, I don't know if those are really weaknesses. Again, because most of what I've just said is the fault of the life phase that I'm in. Yeah. But... Um, they were they're the things to consider if you're thinking about reading this book. Well, some people attack it and say it's sentimental, it's cliche. But of course, the funny thing <laughs> here is is it's the birthplace of the cliche. For of these kinds of cliches, if you if you write um, about this kind of thing, you're copying him. If you've not thought it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It is a far far better thing. Yeah, oh, I mean the, these these are are sentiments that were so perfect that. Who couldn't uh, borrow them? <laughs> and I want to say, too, that while I thought this was a wonderful book, a magnificent book, it wasn't until those last few chapters that I was like, oh, my gosh, this is a transcendent yeah. book. Oh, it, it pushes it over the top. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that some people, those might be some of the parts that people call sentimental. Those people are wrong. Those are not sentimental <laughs> parts. Those are important human. How can you? Oh, that, my gosh. Yeah. If you have a heart, you can't not love those parts. I'm listening to the ending, and I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, yeah, this this is emotional, but but it's cool. And then he drops something else, and, and I'm, uh, literally tears are rolling down my face, and I'm driving down the road <laughs> listening to Charles Dickens. A book that was written before the American Civil War. Uh, but it's that daggum good. I do want to say, too, that my whole experience with this book before I read it was middle school academic team, where we learned what the opening line and the closing lines were and who the principal characters were and a brief plot outline. So that before I picked this up, I knew loosely um, what the main character should look like. I knew kind of what we were building toward and it was easy as I started reading to just get a plot together in my head and to see at least mostly what was going to happen to whom from the beginning and that did not spoil this book which I think is pretty awesome in its own way Um, it was still a wonderful book to read really we've tried very hard as we talked about it here not to give you any spoilers in case you have not read it and this is something that you do want to read but if we told you right now what the ending was, it would not spoil this book for you. Not an iota. Which um, is a special thing on its own. Of course, other Dickens. Um, we both love Great Expectations. Uh, David Copperfield has a, a special place in my heart. Um, you bought that in England. I did. I have my, my British copy over mm-hmm. there on the shelf. And, uh, of course, everybody at some point reads A Christmas Carol, which might be his other most sentimental novel. But Yeah, I read it on the beach on spring break. That's funny. Because I was assigned it for a college class. And well, it was, it was the one then. time in college that I went to the beach for spring break, and I had to read A Christmas Carol, so I read it on the beach. Um, God bless us, everyone. <laughs> Great Expectations is my very favorite of his. I, I do think that that's wonderful for anyone to read. Um, it's longer. It's longer, but it's every it pa- every page is beautiful. It is. I, I, I might it's well got the best characters. Tale of Two Cities. I, it might well be my, my hill that I die on on Charles Dickens. That's okay. We can agree to disagree. Because it is a far greater thing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I did want to say before we signed off here, just a little bit about classic literature. That's what we're talking about. And we're maybe talking about doing some more of those kinds of things in the weeks to come. Not all the time, but every now and then. Just how would you define classic literature, Joe? What do you think the canon is? And then, um, well, let's start there. 
I mean, in some in some sense, isn't the canon anything that's old enough to be outdated that we still care about? I, I mean, I can't consider whether Harry Potter ultimately is part of the canon because Harry Potter's current, more or less. Uh, it, it really, you can't ask that question yet. Well, there, there has to be an aspect of artistry to it that transcends just your regular, well, I wrote a book artistry. Yeah, there, there's the element of craft. I mean, there's the element of would you study this in a literature class? Although it is notable that, like, I'm a Sherlock Holmes nerd, and sometimes Sherlock Holmes is kind of iffy on those grounds. I think you could very well read, say, The Hound of the Baskervilles in an English literature class. I don't think it would be out of place. Uh, they're a little bit poppy for classic literature, but I think most people would grudgingly put Sherlock Holmes in there. Um, but, you know, I mean, there, there's not some bright-line test. It's It's more... What's old enough to otherwise be obsolete, but important enough that people still want to read? So what do you think makes Dickens fit as a canonical author? I mean, he's a guy who wrote for magazines, who... Um, but he, he Who is, was so popular. And he, I think he was the J.K. Rowling of his day. People were, like, hanging out at the shipyard waiting for the next serial installment sure. in, his, in the magazine to come in. He was a pop writer. Yeah. Time. Time. I mean, the Beatles were pop writers, too. And in 50 <laughs> years, if we're still here and people still listen to music, the Beatles will be classical music. Agree. Um, Charles Dickens, it's the same story. Um, the, those novels are, are the works of their generation. They are Victorian England for people like me who will never otherwise know it. But then again, it is that... Um, there's something in them that doesn't leave them there. The fact that they are about the human condition, no matter what, and that they are written in a way that still touches the human heart after all of these years. And they've got great characters. Don't underestimate great characters. You know, what do you come back to? It's Huckleberry Finn on a raft. It's Pip in a graveyard. You know, these are the things that, that matter. And if you, you can put your characters together well enough, uh, maybe they carry you on the artistry. I mean, I don't know. It's gone with the wind classic literature. I don't mm, not know. Not anymore. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a tough question right now. And I guess that's the thing, too. These things turn. You Things are revered for a number of years, and then it, it just it, it does change with each generation. Yeah, and and, and it should, as it should. Well, and the, the fun thing, then, is, is maybe in a generation, if, if Gone with the Wind isn't in the canon... Then it gets a cult following. It's like, ooh, people should talk about this within the canon. I mean, like I read like Wilkie Collins uh, when we read Victorian uh, novels. And I have no doubt in his day, Wilkie Collins was every bit as big a deal as Dickens. Now, you say Charles Dickens, people know who you're talking about. You say Wilkie Collins. I don't know who you're talking nobody's about. Nobody's thinking about the Moonstone, but they probably should be. But, you know, these are the kind of debates you can have once the deck gets shuffled and reshuffled. I guess ultimately, I mean, we're really, we're not snobs about any of it at all. We'll read anything that seems good. Um, it's just a, a debate that's really kind of worth having. What's worth reading together and what's worth talking about together. Many of the books that we think are would not fit on any canonical list. So. Well, and, and like, it's a fun thing in sports because sports writing isn't old enough to be canonical. But like Tom Boswell this week. 52 years at the Washington Post, he just retired. When I was a kid, I used to read Tom Boswell's baseball books. 
people still write baseball books in 50 or 100 years. Tom Boswell is probably a canonical sports writer. I don't think that he thought about that. I'm not sure there's any literary society that will crown him with that, but uh, I mean... But there is in, in literature, like really kind of. You get crowned, and I'm putting that in my little quotation mark. Yeah, you get marks. plaudits. You get the Nobel Prize or something <laughs> like that, but... You know, that'll be a fun thing to watch. Does anybody really care about a, a ball and a bat and a glove and a touchdown? And they don't, but they kind of do. We've gotten way off what we should be talking about, as we usually do. Let's talk about what we're going to read over the next two weeks so that any of you all who want to follow along can do it. Yeah. Uh, great book that we have both read before. Frederick Beekner's Peculiar Treasures. Uh, Beekner is one of the great spiritual writers of, of his or probably any other time. And Peculiar Treasures is a book I have a special soft spot for. Uh, he's a very organized kind of writer. He's a very ABC kind of writer. And so he did uh, its sketches on some of the famous people of the Bible, except that under his pen, people who didn't come alive to me despite reading their story five or 10 or 15 times, come alive in two pages under his bed. He brings them to life just with a richness that makes you feel like they could be sitting right next to you on the couch. And so it's a book that we've been going through with our daughter and really just enjoying ourselves as we've kind of started it. And so we thought, well, let's talk about it here. If you have read Peculiar Treasures, let us know what you think. If you have not read it, seriously consider giving that one a shot over the next couple of weeks. Frederick Beekner, um, the title and the author will be in the show notes if you'd like to check those out and then let us know what you think. Thanks so much for listening. Follow us on the social media, send us an email, all that good stuff. In the meanwhile, keep listening, keep reading. <laughs> <laughs>